Okay, it's the end of the Jonah series tonight. We've gone through a whole book of the Bible already. Um, and the funny part is, we'll only get through two books this year. So, um, this is the short book. We're going to start Luke next week. If you've never read Dr. Luke, he's thorough. He's an historian. Um, so, uh, I would, in, uh, in all honesty, Luke will take you uh, 30 to 45 minutes to read, depending on your reading speed. Sometime within the next month, I would challenge you, especially on a Sabbath, it's a good Sabbath day activity, just carve out 30 to 45 minutes and read through the whole book. I say this with all texts. If you get a chance to read it as a whole, it makes studying the micro easier because you understand the macro. Does that make sense? So when you see the whole pizza, when we pull out a small portion of the pie, you know what you're eating. Um, Instead of, oh, we've missed the mushrooms on that slice. Um, no, those come later. They were on the pizza. So do your best if you get the chance this next month. I won't even challenge you to do this week. But sometimes it's next month. Dive into the Gospel of Luke. Um, here are the announcements. Uh, we still have our weekly Bible study. Even with uh, lighter attendance, we will still meet. We'll just break into two groups the next couple weeks. Um, It'll just be next week. Right? Just next week, yes. Yeah. Um, the, we will have Yak next week. The only weeks we don't have Yak, the fall and the winter, excuse me, are Rocktober. We won't have it that Sunday. And then when we go to the Stonebriar concert. So we're still meeting together. We're just all meeting to watch our fellow people sing. What is the Stonebriar concert? Um, it's like December 12th or something. It's the second week in December. So... Um, so that's there. Um, so you know, the, if you didn't get the email, the Louisiana strike team um, kind of imploded. They closed the church the week we were supposed to go. So we won't be able to serve in that capacity. Um, I did reach out to a couple other organizations, and they need skilled laborers. And no offense, um, you're not that. So putting up drywall and stuff like that, we're not there yet. Um, so the plan at this point is to explore things, a trip for spring break. Um, again, it can be a small group. It can be four to five people. But we'll plan on doing a mission trip on spring break, and we'll do something local over the winter break. I don't know what that is yet, but we'll do something. We might wrap presents somewhere for people, or maybe I talk to Joe and we do something fun. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Okay. Um, so that's the plan for, um, what's it called? Outreach stuff, mission stuff. Um, October money was due today. So if you haven't turned it in, um, get it to me by next week. Okay? Not too freaked out. We're two weeks away from October. Okay? And then bring Bibles to youth group. We're in it every time. So before we begin, I want you to jump to the book of Amos, chapter 6. If you don't know where that is, there's something in your Bible at the very beginning called the Table of Contents. Okay? That'll tell you where Amos is. Amos is in a thick book. So feel free, don't feel bad if you don't know exactly where it is in your Bible. Put your finger on Amos 6, keep it there, and then I want you to flip with your finger still in its spot to Jonah 4. So it's just a, essentially a bookmarker so you can flip to it quickly when we get to that section in the text. Jonah's another one where you might need to look at the table of contents because it's like five pages long. Okay, let me pray. We'll dive in. Oh, Father God, as we dive into your word tonight, as we finish up this book of the Bible, uh, Lord, may you give us honesty with our hearts. Jonah is a hard book. 
And most of the time, we try to ignore the things we don't like uh, instead of embrace the things that we need you to sanctify us in. And this is a book that does just that. Uh, Lord, may we see the areas that we need to work in tonight, uh, and may we apply those to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. There might not be a more relevant passage, I think, in today's American world than Jonah 4. If you want to talk about racism, you go to Jonah 4. If you want to talk about bitterness, Jonah 4. If you want to talk about desiring justice for your enemies, Jonah 4. If you want to reveal the hate in your own heart, Jonah 4. If you want to reveal indifference in your own heart, Jonah 4. So let's jump into Jonah 4. Good job, Jonah 4. So this is, the title is Jonah's Anger and the Lord's Compassion. But it displeased Jonah, so we're in Jonah 6, sorry, Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Think about it. Like, we use that phrase all the time in such like a happy context, you know? Oh, Lord. Oh, no. Um, for I knew that you are a gracious God. Like, that's like a happy Christian church t-shirt. And he is angry as he exclaims this prayer to the Lord, um, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from the disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. This guy's like got a bent, doesn't he? Remember Jonah 1? For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? If you don't think the Lord is sarcastic. Or, are you serious? Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plants for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which more than there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's the end. So that's like a Jeff Foxworthy Bible quiz. What book of the Bible ends with a reference to cattle? You know it now. Jonah. Okay? So it's just like, it's a weird ending. You know, Jonah from a story standpoint really doesn't kind of have this like clear beginning, middle, and end. It's like the anti-Lord of the Rings, where Lord of the Rings had this hour-long epilogue. 
Jonah just kind of ends with a question and like, that's it. What happened to Jonah? We don't know. We assume that he was alive when he wrote this letter. We assume that Jonah wrote this letter. We we just kind of, you know, leaves it there. But think about this. Jonah has come a long way, hasn't he? Or maybe. Well, you see what happened. So let's review. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites and fears what the Lord might do. So he hops on a ship to the farthest place he can think of. The Lord chases him, sends a storm. Jonah would rather die than listen to God. So he jumps into the ocean and God still saves him, essentially from himself. And in the process, he actually saves the sailors that sailed with Jonah. He uses the sin of Jonah to bring about their repentance. It's pretty cool. And then it seems in chapter 2 that God uses the sin of Jonah to bring about Jonah's repentance. It is when the scales fall off Jonah's eyes that he realizes the depth of his sin, and he turns and follows the will of the Lord. He goes into Nineveh and preaches for 40 days, and what do the Ninevites actually do? They repent. How dare they? That's not what Jonah wanted. He makes that very clear in chapter 4. He hates the Ninevites. Now let's remember or learn where Jonah is coming from. Where's Jonah coming from? He is from the northern kingdom of Israel, about 40 or 50 years prior to them being captured by the Assyrians. He is a prophet of God during the reign of Jeroboam II. And while Israel during this time is prosperous, both in land and economically, their hearts, especially that of their rulers, are far from God. The prophet Amos, this is where you flip, Amos in chapter 6 in his Old Testament book, attacks the ruling elite for their sins. This is Amos. He's another prophet. He's attacking the ruling elite in Jerusalem for their sin. He says, you put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie in beds adored with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Israel is a slothful people that economically has prospered and because of it has turned from God. This is the people that Jonah is coming from. We've talked most of the time about the people he was going to. So Jonah is in the midst of an Israel who too has begun and already has turned away from God. They have become a wicked people. But they're not as bad as the Assyrians, right? (coughs) What's your first fall in the blank? (coughs) Why do we always play the compare game? Why do we always play the compare game? We are so quick to compare our sin to the sin of another. Because honestly, and this is real, let's be real, it makes us feel better about ourselves. Jonah himself has run away and turned his back on the Lord. But he wasn't nearly as bad as every single Assyrian, right? The great theologian George W. Bush at his address to the fallen officers in Dallas, said this, and I think this is so true of the human condition. 
I'm not going to try a George W. Bush impression. I don't have it anymore. Too often, we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Too often, we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. We are always better than those we disdain, right? Can you think of one person you disdain that you actually think is better than you? <coughs> we are always deserving of mercy and grace before those who we perceive should be given justice and said. We're always deserving more grace. They're not. They're bad. They deserve it. This leads to several things. The first is this, is your next fill in the blank. We tend to share no joy in the grace and mercy given to others. We tend to share no joy in the grace and mercy given to others. If that guy at school, who is a jerk, asks girl X to homecoming, and she says yes to him, instead of saying yes to you, there is no joy. Why is it the person who is so successful on the sports team you play on is always the most arrogant person? Lord, why haven't you gifted them with talents? Why have you gifted them with talents and not I? Surely I would use them better. They shouldn't be team, team captain. They shouldn't have gotten the lead in the play. They shouldn't have gotten a better grade than me on the test. They shouldn't be happy. Because that's what it comes down to, right? It comes down to seeing someone we stay happy. We find no joy in that. Because that's what it comes down to. We share not joy in the joys others receive when they receive grace. Jonah shares no joy in the grace and mercy given to the Assyrians. I mean, think about it. He's had, like, the best revival. Billy Graham's crusade model should be based off Jonah's. Okay? He's got 120,000 people, including their cattle, to repent. Okay? Talk about, like, a turn of events. He should be like, yeah. I mean, he shouldn't even be on the side of arrogance before the Lord. Like, Lord, look how you used me. Talk about church growth models. Just go to the most wicked place in the world and tell them to repent and watch them do it. Like, he should be on that end of the spectrum. But instead, he sees all these people repent and he's like, no! How dare you, God say? This is your next fill in the blank. When we can't, and sometimes we just can't, like we're so rooted in our sin that we just can't imagine being happy for somebody. When we can't and sometimes choose not to share in the joy of others, we become bitter. We become bitter. Not the salt of the earth, we become the sour of the earth. Just turn on the TV during this political cycle. Real quick. Like Sour Patch Kids on every channel. We become sour. Bitter. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, o Lord, o Lord please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die 
than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Does this help you being bitter? What good does it do that you sit there and steam over acts? So he heads outside the city to wait. Clearly he did his job of calling the people to repentance. It doesn't say that he bounced out of Nineveh before the 40 days were up. But my assumption is he found a place to watch the city on the 40th day just in case there was a disaster. Now, Lord, okay, maybe, I know he's gracious, but maybe just this time they'll get what they deserve. Maybe this will be the day. We love disaster, don't we? It's the reason traffic gets so bad after an accident. Most of the time, the cars aren't even in the road by the time we get there. But we want to slow down and see what happens. We love accidents. You can watch almost any type of disaster unfold on YouTube. Literally. Just type in disaster on YouTube. And you can, every type of disaster can watch you unfold. And the number of hits on those videos are immense. I mean, people are like voyeurs for like punishment. We love watching disasters. There's even a whole type of film called the disaster film. And then there are films that are disasters, like Independence Day Resurgence. So bad. Okay? Okay? So, we, we disasters, we can't keep our eyes on. We love seeing people get what they deserve. The number of hits on YouTube videos for people getting what they don't deserve, well, that's great. It even works itself out in humor. If we're moral, we would probably not laugh at a widow or homeless person or disabled individual trip on a curb and hit their head on a light post. We probably wouldn't laugh at that because they don't deserve that. They've already been through enough. But if the same thing happens to a politician or a lawyer or that person you thought of earlier on in those examples, <laughs> Karma, buddy! You got exactly what you deserved in your face! Boom! God of the universe just spoke! We're like rejoicing over it! Ha ha ha! And that plays out in our humor. Every comedy, it's the guy that has prospered that bad stuff happens to. Because he doesn't deserve it. But all the laughter and gawking at the misery of others proves, all it does is prove that we are bitter. When they receive blessings, we think that they don't. We do this all the time. I hate it, writing this talk. Just so you know. Because it was a little too convicting. The fact is this. This is the next fill in the blank. The fact is, you being bitter does nothing to affect them. Nothing. It just destroys you. It just destroys you. It does nothing to affect them. You being better does nothing to affect them. It just destroys you. Jonah continues, verse 6, And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Side note, one of the best characters in film is that worm in the Jonah movie. Tells so good. When the sun rose, God appointed, and God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Think about it. Like, he sounds like my son Stephen. I don't want the hot dog. It's cold now. I want to die. It's a hot dog. I can heat it up in the microwave. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Mention that hot dog analogy with Stephen. Which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God is revealing the smaller versus greater conundrum in the heart of Jonah yet again. He is more angry with the plant's death than he is before Nineveh's death. He would have welcomely, he wouldn't have welcomely died for 120,000 people. He wouldn't have done that. But he would gladly have died because of one miraculous plant. Next two fill in the blanks. They're back to back. What do you make small that is really great? What do you make small that is really great? And on the flip side of that, what do you make great that is really small? What do you make great that is really small? Does your bitterness cause you to wish harm on others because you feel they have in some way harmed you? Does your hate make you judge instead of make you a judge instead of a person of mercy? Do you make decisions based on how you feel about a person or a group of people? Or do you make decisions based on God calling you to go to that group of people? I don't feel that way about them, Lord, so clearly not me. Now, I want you to think of the worst person you can think of. The worst person you can think of. I would give you some time to try to find them in your mind, but the fact is it seems really easy for us to recall the worst person over choosing who we would put as the best person to think of. So most of you probably already have them in your head. I want you to think of them right now, the worst person. Do you honestly believe they deserve less grace than you? Do you honestly believe they deserve less grace than you? If you do, then you don't understand your sin. And you don't understand the cost of Jesus purchasing you with the blood. You see, Jesus didn't die for Israel. He loves Israel, but he wants the Gentiles, just for Israel. He wants the Gentiles to be grafted in too. That includes me, that includes you. That includes the worst person, and he loves them too. And this is your next fill in the blank. And until you realize that, your view of the love of God will be limited by your love for other people. Not the other way around. Your view of the love of God will be limited by your love for other people. And not the other way around. Instead of what it should be, which is the next fill in the blank. Your view of the love of God should extend your love to other people. That's what it should do. Your view of the love of God should extend your love for other people. If you want to jump here, 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 16. Paul says this, 
to his mentee, Timothy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save good people. To save people who deserved grace. To save the moral elite. To save the religious right. Right? It's all of those. Now, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, I don't believe if we lined up every sinner over the history of the planet in a single file line that we would find Paul at the front of the line of sinners. I don't believe that. I don't believe if we lined up every sinner that Paul would be the leader. I don't think this verse is referring to how evil Paul is compared to everyone else. What I do think this verse is saying is this is how we will understand the love of God. By always thinking of ourselves as least of these compared to others. That's how we will understand the love of God. If we have that mindset. That is, like Paul did, that we are the least, the most undeserving of these compared to others. If we ever think of ourselves as greater, we will become bitter. Isn't that interesting? If we think of ourselves as greater, it doesn't lead to, like, good. We, we just become bitter when other people get what we want. We will become angry. We will lack mercy. We will lack grace. We will lack an understanding of God's love. And most terribly, we will limit our outpouring of God's love to others. That's the worst thing about it. Not only does it affect you, it affects everyone else on the chessboard of life. That's what bitterness does. Some of you will go off to college. You will make friends and have acquaintances. And if things play out well, 50% of those friends and acquaintances will leave before their sophomore year. That's the statistic. You will watch them make really poor decisions. Okay, getting hammered every weekend, skipping class, constantly rotating through bad relationships, followed by bad relationships. They will be the definition of a fool. It will be really easy for you to wipe the dirt of your sandals and leave them to their own destruction. And that will be wise under some of those circumstances. It will be wise under some of those circumstances. But those are the same people God calls you to reach out to. Those are the same people God calls you to reach out to. There are two types of churches. Clubhouses and lighthouses. Chuck Swindoll tells a phenomenal story about how easy it is for us to slip into the idea of church as a clubhouse. I stole this directly from Chuck Swindoll. It's such a good story. You will hear it over the course of your life probably a dozen times. So if you haven't heard it before, awesome. I get to introduce it to you. If you've heard it before... Listen to the richness of it and see how it applies. <coughs> On a dangerous sea coast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, it was merely a hut with only one boat. But a few members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in dangers as well as the lost. Many lives were saved by these brave band who faithfully worked as a team and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. 
Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time, energy, and money in support of its objectives. Now, boats were purchased. New crews were trained. The station, once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant, began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy, and the hut was so unattractive and poor. Some of its members were unhappy. The hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough homemade equipment was discarded and sophisticated. Classic systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, and systems. And by the time of its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place, and its objectives began to shift. It was now used as a sort of a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed, rarely occurred. Fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. Life-saving motifs still prevailed in clubhouse decorations. There was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-to-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked, off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty. Some were terribly sick, lonely. Others were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee, they must have been Presbyterians, saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside, away from the club, so the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. And at the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in the division among members. Most of these people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvements with shipwreck victims. As you expect, some still insisted on saving lives, that this was their primary objective, that their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help regardless of the club's beauty and size of decorations. They were voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they would have to begin their own life-saving stations down the coast. And they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes and evolved into another club. And yet another life-saving station was begun. History repeated itself. And if you visit the coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline, owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with saving lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, and so few others seem to care. So very few. You live along the coast of the storm. That's the world, and if you spend enough time in the waters, it's clear to see the dangers and the ship needing saving. The question becomes, will you become bitter at those ships for putting themselves into the same storm? What idiots! They knew the storm was coming, and they still went out there anyways. They don't deserve it. They're fools. They were in it for themselves. They just wanted more clams and lobsters. Or will you be reminded that you were once that ship in need of a rescuer? And he came with assessing how worthy, and he, and he came without assessing how worthy you were. Here are three things you can remember to reach out to your enemies for. These are three things I want you to kind of walk away with. One is this pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. 
Pray for those you are uncomfortable around. For their sake. And for yours. Two. This is the hard one. Seek out those who are not like you. This church, this youth group, shouldn't just represent one demographic, but should be inclusive and seek to shepherd all demographics. And this is not, this is not, this is not hard. Like this is, it's hard for your heart, but it's not like hard to put into action. Okay, I'm going to remove this from the iTunes, you're the only one that's going to hear it because I hate I hate using myself as a proper example. I hate that. But it's one example I've seen. So I'm, I'm a year, I'm a, a semester into college, and I decided not to do choir anymore. It's just taking up too much of my time, and I, I, I realized I made a bad decision, so I, I, I decided to join the chorale second semester. Well, they're already halfway through the year, like their season. So I'm coming in as the new guy, okay? So I come in, and there's a room full of 70 people who have all known each other for the last six months, I have two options. I can sleep in, go to my section, which is what I want to do. Like, right? We don't want to deal with you people. Have you met choir people? They're weird, okay? I know that because I'm one of them. Like, I don't know, I just want to go to my section. I want to stay with the 10 or 2s, base 1s. That's all I want. Now I'm going to go in, and I'm going to make it a point to meet as many people in the room as I can. And I literally shook 50 people's hand as I walked into that room. I just walked around, which there are 10 minutes before class, and I tried to meet everyone. I said, hey, I'm AJ, I'm new. What section do you sing in? Tried to learn their names and such. That's all, all I did. All I did was acknowledge their existence. They acknowledged mine because they were forced to. Okay? Every introvert in the room was like, don't hug me. Please don't hug me. You know? Um, and I didn't. I just shook their hands. But I, all I did was get to know them, called them by name, and made a point to call them by name every time I entered the room. To the point where I made it awkward. I'm like, look, I've asked you for your name six times now. Can I, can I get it one more time? Like, I know I'm stinking at this. And they'd laugh about it and give me their name one more time. By, this, by the fall, when we met again, I was voted vice president as a sophomore for the choir. Is that because I have phenomenal leadership skills or phenomenal? No. It's because I literally had shooken hands with everyone in the choir, and I was one of the few people that everyone knew. I had suddenly become an influencer because I decided to know names of weird people. It's, it's not... It's not rocket science. It's hard, especially for people like me, that, like, I just want a book. I want, you know, a lemonade, and I want a corner. It doesn't, it doesn't even need to be light. Like, I got a flashlight. Like, I'm fine with that. Watson's like, yeah, man, I'm with you. Okay? I get that. But it leads me to my third point. Go. For all of Jonah's shortcomings, he went. Even if he didn't feel like it. That's hard. That kid at the lunchroom where you're like, you're weird, 
That's why no one sits with you. We'll talk to him. Hey, what's your name? How long have you been in Frisco? I always see you sit alone. Can I sit with you? You don't got to say anything more. You're just sitting with the guy. Next day, you might bring up another conversation. It's not hard. The person in choir, the person that blank, you might not like it, but you're called to go. And if Jonah shows us anything, it's going even when we don't feel like it. I hated this talk. Anyone else? A little convicting for me. So we're going to break into transformation groups, uh, which are going to look a little bit different tonight. And uh, from there, um, we'll talk. Hey.